First Person is produced in cooperation with the Far East Broadcasting Company, who rejoice in the stories of changed lives through the power of Jesus Christ. Learn more at febc.org. Look at my hands, reach out your hand, and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God, there's no indication that he did it. I don't think he did. I think he sees and hears Jesus, and he just says, my Lord and my God. Happy Easter weekend to you, and welcome to First Person, where Michael Card will join me in opening the scriptures together. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and in addition to Michael, Dr. George Guthrie will also join us for our first segment. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you of our website, where you can learn more about each week's guest and topic. It's firstpersoninterview.com. You'll also find us at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview, where you can leave comments and suggestions. Once again, that's facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Each week, Michael Card and I have a podcast called In the Studio with Michael Card. To listen to the podcast in its entirety, please visit firstpersoninterview.com where you'll find a link or search for it on your favorite podcast site. But we begin now by hearing a portion of a recent program with Michael when we were joined by Dr. George Guthrie of Regent College to discuss the meaning of Christ's sacrifice woven throughout the book of Hebrews, a book of the Bible written in the context of great persecution. Here's Michael to begin the conversational study. Well, I, I mean, to me, the, one of my new ideas, George, is that all of these New Testament writers, they write in Greek, but they think in Hebrew. I mean, he, he clearly thinks in categories from the Hebrew Scriptures. It's not just that he quotes the Hebrew Bible. He thinks in the Hebrew Bible. And so when it comes to his portrayal of Jesus, it's just woven into uh, or woven from passages of the Old Testament, the high priests and the better than themes and that sort of thing, and specifically um, Jesus' sacrifice. And as we're coming up to Lent, I wanted to hear you uh, talk about that. Yeah, let me give let me give kind of a bigger framework just for a second and then go to that particular topic, if I can do that. Okay. Um, in terms of big picture, you're right. I mean, Hebrews is absolutely saturated with the scriptures. In fact, you, mm-hmm. you could say that more than any other book in the New Testament, uh, the one exception being Revelation, Hebrews is more packed with Old Testament. That And mm-hmm. Hebrews does things very differently from Revelation. Revelation Everything is echo and, you know, different passages and images are being evoked, but it's saturated. Hebrews is saturated in that almost every verse is, is touched by this interaction with the broader Jewish scriptures. Now, the author is mm-hmm. uh, reading that through the Greek Old Testament specifically. That's, that's his right. Bible that he's using, but it is profoundly Jewish. And what he's doing is he's, he's interacting with this early Christian community who's beginning to feel the heat and the pressure of persecution. Mm. They're really having the heat put on them. And some of them have one foot out the door. You know, they're thinking, I I didn't buy into this. I mean, ah. the difficulties that are going on. So there's a lot there for us to identify with. Hebrews helps us think about how do we endure when we're really beginning to go through significantly challenging times, right? Mm -hmm. And the basic answer that the author gives 
is you've got to think very clearly about the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is, mm-hmm. and about what Jesus has accomplished for us. Mm. And the way that I say it to my students is that your perseverance in the Christian life is going to be in direct proportion to the clarity with which you see who Jesus is mm. and what he has accomplished on our behalf. Mm. If you get fuzzy, in other words, if you get fuzzy, about the identity of Jesus or about the nature of the gospel, then you're going to have a hard time hanging in there in the Christian mm. life. Hmm. So everything else, the, the theology that he lays out is kind of in two big movements. The first movement is the first two chapters on kind of grounding in the exalted son of God who came down to be one of us in the incarnation to die mm-hmm. and to be our high priest. Mm-hmm. And then the great center section is on the appointment of Jesus as high priest. That's 5, 1 through 10 and 7, 1 through 28. And then the superior offering of the high priest in chapters 8 and 9 and half of 10. Mm-hmm. So you have the grounding in the identity of Jesus, his appointment as priest, and then it moves to the issue of his superior sacrifice, which is superior in a number of ways. Okay, is that essentially, I mean, what's unique is essentially that Jesus is the high priest who offers himself as the sacrifice? That's that's a huge part of it, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. he is both high priest and sacrifice. Hmm. And if you think about it, unless he had been incarnate, he couldn't have been either one. Mm-hmm. The Old Testament scriptures make it clear that every high priest is taken from among human beings. Uh-huh. Hebrew, Hebrews 5.1 points that out uh-huh. so he had to come from among the people that's where the he that's where the high priest was taken uh-huh. but then also he could not have been the sacrifice if he had not died and he couldn't have died unless he was human wow okay and he's even and he's even the veil in the temple that you pass through i mean what what isn't jesus in the hebrew bible <laughs> yeah it's it's all over the place i mean in terms of of the the rich significance of how Jesus takes up into himself all of the, the hopes and the needs hmm. of covenant with God. You know, all the all the stuff, all the sacrifice, all the sacrifices. In fact, let's th- talk about sacrifice just for a moment. Uh, the author says that Jesus' sacrifice is superior, that hmm. last movement of that center section of the book, because it is made with his own blood. It is taken into heaven, not just into an earthly tabernacle. Mm-hmm. And it's made uh, just one time for all. Oh, yeah. Not yearly. Not not perpetually, not year yeah. after year after year. It's so decisive. It's so decisive that it only had to be made one time. And the mind-blowing thing is for Hebrews, it doesn't just reach forward to the end of time. It also reaches back to the beginning of time with creation. It covers everything. It's so decisive. And if we ever get our heads around how decisive the sacrifice of Christ is, it will change us. Wow. It will change our lives. Every, If you're in the new covenant, every sin you have ever committed, every sin you ever will commit has already been decisively dealt with by Jesus. And, so and we're can't... linear, you know, we're linear. We have to yeah. keep, keep up with what's going on and come to God and, and agree with God about our sin and, and all that kind of thing, but it's already dealt with. 
So can I say it? I want to say it this way really badly. Tell me if I can say it this way. You can be forgiven because you've already been forgiven. You're, the price has already been paid. Is that? I think that's right. It's it's not that God is never withholding. If you're a new covenant person, your sins have already been dealt with. That's what he picks up on in Jeremiah 31 with the new covenant passage. I will remember their sins no more. No more. That doesn't mean uh, that God gets amnesia. Yeah. <laughs> it means that God has chosen in the new covenant to no longer deal with us on the basis of our sin because Jesus has completely decisively dealt with it. Well, that's some good news right there. It is, man. And it doesn't mean that we can be cavalier because if a person's saying, well, that means I can sin all I want to, that's probably reflecting something about their spiritual condition yeah. that is terrifying. You don't get it. You you don't get it. And you, you probably you know, are not a part of what's, you know, being taught. Yeah, and in fact, I, I believe the, the strongest deterrent to sin is realizing what it costs and what Jesus had to go through. You know, I stand before the cross and I think of what, what particular sin, you know, that moment of the many I'm guilty of, and I realize I nailed you there. Yeah, yeah, it's humbling, I, isn't it? it? I, you know, well, that's that that's that Rem, wonderful Rembrandt picture of Rembrandt raising the cross. He realized, yeah, that's my. This is what I did to you. Yeah, and and abs- absolutely, and and then the other thing is we, but you know, we're now in Lent and we're beginning to anticipate Easter. Uh-huh. The wonderful thing is how all of this ties into resurrection life. Hmm. Because for Hebrews, Hebrews is not super overt about talking about resurrection because it's so oriented to Psalm 110.1, and we don't have time to go there. Uh, but uh-huh. you know, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make mm-hmm. your enemies a footstool for your feet. The exaltation of Jesus after his resurrection, that's all kind of dealt with together in Hebrews. But in chapter 8, he says that the basis for Jesus being appointed as our high priest was not like the earthly priest, which was who, who was your daddy, you know, uh-huh. uh, in terms of if you're a Levite, you can be a priest. The basis for Jesus' high priesthood, his appointment, you can read in chapter 7, is that he has an indestructible life. And he is appointed as he is resurrected. The Father, by an oath, says, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, which is verse 4 of Psalm 110. Mm -hmm. And so, it's the resurrected life that means that Jesus is a superior high priest. He's always there in the presence of God for us. He's not going to die on you like the old covenant priest. Mm. He's always there as our intercessor. And that then gives us a basis. He not only leads us into resurrection life, he is he is embodying resurrection life on our behalf mm. right now until we get there. <laughs> mm. And we live there in hope of a city whose builder and maker is God. That's chapter 11. Mm-hmm. That real faith sees the reality out there in the future, that all of this is leading to the new heavens and the new earth. Wow. So that's that's a lot to get our heads around, but, but oh. that's how this leads us to Easter. <laughs> hmm. That is amazing. I, Mike, I feel yeah. like I need to write a tuition check to uh, George for the board. <laughs> I think that would be a good idea. <laughs> Please do. I would be glad. I would yeah. be glad. <laughs> How about if I buy your book? Would that be all right, George? Yeah. That would be very all helpful. Right. Yeah, people want to start with something. The NIV application commentary is very yes. accessible for like, yes. yes. Well, that, that would be a good place to start. When you have the kind of image that the NIV 
application, you know, uh, commentary will give you, that opens the book of Hebrews up to you. Dr. George Guthrie in conversation with Michael Card. In a moment, Michael looks at the persistence of doubt in the scriptures. I'm Ed Cannon. The Far East Broadcasting Company partners with First Person because we celebrate the stories of people everywhere who have given their lives to Christ and serve Him. Our broadcasters in 50 countries of the world hear stories every day of people whose lives are transformed by the gospel and who have faithfully been taught God's Word. In addition to First Person, I'm pleased that Wayne and I host a podcast, and we invite you to join us. Listen to Until All Have Heard at febc.org. That's febc.org. On this Easter weekend, here's another excerpt from Michael Card's podcast as Michael and I look to the New Testament and discuss the people we find who had doubts. I think John John and Luke are are constantly fighting to be my favorite Gospels <laughs> uh, because they're both so unique. But, of course, everyone knows John is the most unique, right? Mm-hmm. 92% of John isn't yep. in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Right. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with his, his age and the fact, I mean, I think that Think of this. By, by the time John's writing his gospel, Peter's been dead for 30 years. Imagine that. He's the last one. Yeah. It's also John's closeness to Jesus. Yeah. It, yeah. I think they're related. I think they're cousins. Um, so There are a lot of reasons that makes make John, uh, I think, special. Uh, I, I think maybe one of the biggest ones that's most uh, often overlooked is he's been preaching and teaching these things for 40, 50 years. And I think that's why uh, it, it comes together in themes uh, the way it does. I mean, there's sort of an elegance. Uh, Mark doesn't have that elegance. Now, Mark is it's God's word and it's perfect. Don't get me wrong. Right. But their their perfection is sort of different. You know, it takes on different uh, qualities. Well, when you think about it in those terms, the detail in John that is, is written here yep. after all that length of time. Yep. And it's eyewitness detail. A lot of it. I yeah, mean, he right. he saw a lot of these things and. Uh, um, Unforgettable stuff. Huh? Yeah, uh, yeah, and and I think he he puts together uh, a lot of things. Uh, we're we're going to talk about the the this idea of the persistence of doubt. Um, you know, you get in Luke that great central section of Luke between chapter nine and nineteen. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and it, in in ever increasing detail, he's telling them, "I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be raised on the third day." He tells them that over and over again with a little bit more detail in, in general. Uh, I'm going to be spat upon. I'm going to be bound. You know, he, he adds these details as he goes. And so he had made it clear that they were to expect him to be raised from the dead. But what is stunning to me, and you see it beginning with Lazarus, the, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, and he had raised other people from the dead at this point, but, you know, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Both Martha and Mary say that to him. Yeah, they don't expect it, do they? No, no. It's just it's it's almost as if it's beyond their ability to uh, to expect that to happen. If you had been here, yeah, my if, brother if would not have died. Right. If only that, that's you'd... not a statement expecting him to come back to life. No, I don't think so. Well, I mean, G- Jesus says to um, to uh, Martha, "Your brother will rise again." And she goes, well, I know at the resurrection. Yeah. She thinks he's like giving her a pat on the back and giving her the kind of encouragement <laughs> you get at, her. at funerals, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, you're going to see him again. Yeah, well, I know at the last day. but I, and, and just lately, Wayne, I've, uh, one of my questions was always Mary waiting. You know, Jesus is there, and 
she she stays right where she is until he sends for her, and then she kind of she goes running to him. I think she was hurt and mm-hmm. disappointed. I think there's a whole emotionality to that the story of Lazarus that we've we've missed between those two sisters. We make cartoon characters out of them, yeah. and they're real flesh and blood people who are much deeper, I think, in their emotional yeah. makeup than we give like them the credit. disciples. Mary and Martha didn't get it. No, they they didn't get it, and and they seemed to be incapable of getting it. So again, so we go back to the disciples. The disciples are hearing it all along the way, and at one point, uh, I. I think it's Luke. It's they discuss amongst themselves what rising from the dead might mean. So, what does he mean? We say rising from the dead can't mean rising from the dead. So, I wonder what he means. You know, it's some it's a metaphor. yeah, some symbolic language that he's. uh, uh, So, yeah, and and Jesus, especially in in John, he's lonelier and lonelier and more and more uh, uh, misunderstood and more and more cut off until finally he's all alone. Uh, on the cross, but then after the cross and after the resurrection happens, the persistence of their doubt is what amazes me. Uh, Peter looks in the tomb; he sees the empty tomb, and John says he walks away wondering to himself what what had happened. What does this mean? Right, and um, you, you see Thomas. You know, until I see the wounds, I'm not going to believe. And uh, and on it goes. They, there's just no expectation. Of resurrection, the, I think the first clue is the women go to the tomb to anoint a dead body, right? Yep. And when they see that the stone's been rolled away, do they say, "Oh, he's been raised from the dead"? No, they say, "Someone, Someone stole, stole the, body. the body." Right. So there is zero expectation of resurrection. Jesus, Jesus is talking to Mary. She thinks he's the gardener. She has no expectation of of seeing him. So this this idea of, of of the persistence of their doubt and even and here's the big one. If if you look at Matthew 28, this is when he's giving them the great commission. Uh, let me just read uh, 28:16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them from the tomb. He told them, "Tell the disciples to meet me back in Galilee." Mm-hmm. Okay? So yep. they go back. Yep. When they saw him, they worshiped but, but some, some doubted. doubted. There it is. Yeah, I've, I've never noticed that there before. Yeah, the persistence of their doubt is is amazing. But here's here's the thing: don't roll your eyes. <laughs> no, <laughs> don't roll your eyes at the disciples. We're guilty because we do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how much more? I mean, we have the Holy Spirit. They didn't even they didn't have the Spirit yet. Yeah, right. We have the Holy Spirit in us, active, revealing to us, t- telling us who He is and what He means, and and we still we still doubt. Mm. After all he's done, I mean, how is that even possible? Well, when you think about Matthew 28, some doubted. I mean, perhaps not just one, but more than one of the 11 doubted. One of the 11, right. Then maybe we owe Thomas an apology. <laughs> what do you well, think? maybe he, he was one of them. He is the classic, uh, he's the classic doubter. But it's interesting to me, let's look at that passage. Jesus does not condemn him. He is not condemned for that, that's in John twenty twenty four. Yeah, let's look at it. Uh, but Thomas called the twin, and the tradition is that he's called the twin because he looks so much like Jesus. Isn't that a cool <laughs> yeah, idea? Yeah. I mean, it's just a tradition, but an interesting one. Just like you and Joe Carlson, our producer, look alike, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're mistaken for twins at the airport today. Okay, now that was hurtful. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I digress. But, but Thomas, uh, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. Now, P- 
people are seeing. I mean, and and this happened when 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 the women came and told the disciples that he'd been raised. They didn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Now Thomas hears that they've seen him, and he doesn't believe it. Okay, but but he said to them. If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. So that is, you know, persistent. That's uh, hardcore doubt. Oh, man. A week later, so Thomas had to wait a whole week. Uh, a week later, his disciples were indoors again, and the in, the, the hint is that they're hiding. Um and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you, which is the ordinary greeting. It's like, hi. Mm-hmm. Okay? Shalom laka. Shalom. Um, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. And in my understanding, there, uh, a, more, a more literal translation is, bring your finger over here, which I think is a little bit humorous. Okay? So pr- bring your finger over here. Look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God, there's no indication that he did it. In fact, I don't think he did. Oh. I don't think he did. I think he sees and he hears Jesus, and he just says, my Lord and my God. You know, bring oh, your, bring your finger. Yeah, mm-hmm. stick your hand in here. Come on. And, he, and I, don't, I don't think he did. I don't I, need to, Lord. I think the text would have said that, but that's, that's just me. I wouldn't be dogmatic about that. Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And one of the consistent themes, especially in the Gospel of Mark, is a willingness to believe without seeing. And so so Jesus pronounces a Baroka blessing on those who have seen him. But Wayne, he has us in mind. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's you and me. That's right. We haven't seen, yet we've believed. Um, and then the the here's the and this is the original ending of the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. You're already working on your next book, aren't you? I am. And is this some of the stuff maybe that will come up? Uh, it's it's stuff like this. It's it's trying to listen to the details of the life of Jesus. My, my conviction in this book, I want to know everything that can be known, everything that can be known about Jesus. And so what I want to do is go all through the life of Jesus and ask what the facts mean. For example, okay, uh, what did he wear? You know, uh, when he stubbed his toe, what did he say? I mean, everything that can be known about Jesus, <laughs> I want to know about Jesus. So that's what I'm working on. And I can't wait to read the book that Michael is researching and writing. You've been listening to excerpts from a podcast called In the Studio with Michael Card, and my thanks to Mike for allowing us to share these conversations. If you'd like to listen to his podcast in its entirety, we'll have links to it in our program notes you'll find at firstpersoninterview.com. But of course, it's also widely available on many podcast platforms. In the Studio with Michael Card. I'm thankful to the Far East Broadcasting Company for making First Person possible. FEBC is actively proclaiming the gospel in 50 countries of the world, but these last months have been especially challenging for the FEBC team in Ukraine. Under very difficult circumstances, they are continuing to broadcast the hope and life in Jesus' name to people who are desperate for it. For the latest news and updates from this radio ministry in Ukraine, visit febc.org. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. 
Join us next time for First Person. 